Hello, everybody, and welcome to Citizen Dame, the erotic podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I was trying to think of something clever to say about erotic thrillers, and that was all I could come up with. Um, I am Lauren Humphreys Brooks, and with me, as always, is Karen Peterson. Hello, Karen. Hello. (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Good heavens. Jeez, Karen. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, we are going to talk about erotic thrillers on this on this podcast. The good, the bad, and the really, really sleazy. Um, uh, but before we do that, first of all, Karen, how are you uh, on this lovely Saturday morning? I'm doing all right. It is a lovely Saturday morning, although um, there are some birds outside that have been enjoying this lovely Saturday morning since about 3 a.m., and that's not cool. I'm good. How are you? That's no fun. Pretty good. Pretty good. It was a lovely day yesterday. It is a slightly less lovely day today, which is okay because I went out and did all the things I wanted to do out yesterday. It was lovely. It was nice. I I went to go see Renfield, uh, the first film that I have seen in a movie theater since. I'm so happy for uh, you. Yeah, since like 2020. Really? Yeah. Since Birds of Prey. (laughs) I actually, I think the last film I actually saw in a movie theater was *The Lady Vanishes* because there was a Hitchcock retrospective. Oh, okay. Um, I think that that was the last one because I remember saying bye to my friend, and then we didn't see each other for a year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, like in person, we saw each other uh, on Zoom and stuff like that. But yeah, and that was like that was like March eighth, so <laughs> that was about right. Um, wow. so yeah, I, I enjoyed the crap out of Renfield. I just want to say that you talked about it a good bit on the last podcast, so we won't go into it again, but it is, it is loads of fun it is exactly what I needed it to be. And I had a great time. So definitely worth it. I'm so happy. There was a, a moment when I got a little nervous, like, oh no, what if she hates this? And then she's mad at me because this is her first movie back. But then I was like, no, it's so fun. You're going to love it. So I'm so it's- glad that you yeah, it's fun and it's the it was the right wavelength for me, I think, because I do I love vampire movies, but I honestly love campy vampire movies. And at this stage, anyone trying to really do it seriously has a has an uphill battle. Although I will be interested to see when um Robert Eggers Nosferatu comes out. Mm-hmm. Um that that I think will be interesting. But I liked the fact that Renfield was just like, yeah, this is silly, this is campy, this is ridiculous. Nicolas Cage is playing Dracula. Um <laughs> You know, like we've got action stars. Aquafina is there. And I I really, it, it it hit the right notes for me. I really enjoyed it. Yay. I'm so happy. <laughs> uh, so before we get into, into discussing our erotic thrillers, we do have some updates on some of the things that we've talked about. Um, some of the things we talked about on the last episode, including the stuff that is going on with Jonathan Majors. Uh, and Majors, things are just, going going from 
bad to worse. He now has more abuse victims that have come forward to speak to the DA's office. Um, and he's let go, like he's he's like uh, released his like PR team. So obviously he's kind of in crisis mode right now. Um, I think they released him. They released him. <laughs> it's it said that they it said that he left. <laughs> But yeah, that yeah would make it's not sense, it's yeah. not totally clear. His his publicist, he's separated from his publicist. Separated, um, but, there you go. Uh, but he is still he still has an agent. So mm-hmm. uh, they haven't dropped him yet. So I think they, also, they will once Disney makes their decision. Yeah, exactly. And so he is there is a, a good chance that he's gonna end up being dropped by Disney. And that's that's one of the things that we talked about last week is that he is he's one of those stars that is just becoming a star mm-hmm. and this and so he's not established in the same way as some others like if this were happening to tom cruise you know um or if tom sorry not happening to tom cruise if tom cruise had done something like this mm-hmm. Thank um you. uh this would be this would likely be a very different and, and possibly more complicated conversation in terms of he he would probably be able to weather it majors maybe. probably isn't maybe maybe majors probably isn't going to at least not for several years um and that's a good thing i i wish that if someone like tom cruise did something like this they would drop him um but that seems to be less possible than someone like majors who's just kind of on the rise yeah it's it's so hard to say now in in uh in this like kind of post me too era that we are in it's so hard to know when people are gonna like when things are gonna stick on someone and when they're not and then also for how long so it's Mm -hmm. it's yeah i agree with you i hope i would like to see that if this was somebody the star caliber you know of i don't know brad pitt that something would happen obviously <laughs> yeah. we have seen that that doesn't always um so i i, I don't know it, it part of, part of it kind of depends on on who it is and what the mm-hmm. what the accusations are and how good their publicity team is and since he now no longer has one um he's going away but brad pitt's still got the best you know best there is so i don't yeah and I, it's very I, frustrating I, that it's not you know, equal justice for everyone. Yeah. And, and this has been talked about before the particularly stars like Matrix, who's a black man as well, um, is being treated differently than someone like Brad Pitt against whom there are also very serious allegations. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think, I think Pitt, Pitt is a good example in, in this case. And like this, the, everything seems to have just washed off of him. Um, And that's not happening in the same way with majors. And I do think that some of it is placement in their careers. Pitt has been around forever. He's a very powerful figure in Hollywood. Um, And he's an Oscar winning producer now instead of just an actor. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So he's in a very different career place than majors is, but there's a whole bunch of other things that are kind of attached to that. Mm -hmm. Um, Speaking of, so we'll see what happens with majors. I it's, it's, it's pretty fucking serious. I mean, when you, we've talked about this before when multiple victims come forward and it really should, as Emma Thompson said way, way, way back when it should only take one, it should only take one person to say this man abused me Mm -hmm. to actually make a difference. But especially when it it comes to multiple people coming forward and, and in this case, cooperating with the DA's office, 
this is very this is very serious and it's going to get more serious yeah so we also talked about on on a bonus episode we discussed a little bit um david cho who appears in the netflix series beef and this is also going from bad to worse, partially because of Netflix and and you have to say Stephen Yun, um, Ali Wong, and the entire Beef team kind of lining up behind him. Uh, they have released a statement, uh, essentially dis- discussing the allegation or not the allegations, the things that Cho said in 2014, um, and. What their response was, the story David Cho fabricated nine years ago is undeniably hurtful and extremely disturbing. We do not condone this story in any way, and we understand why this has been triggering. We're aware David has apologized in the past for making up this horrific story, and we've seen him put in the work to get the mental health support he needed over the last decade to better himself and learn from his mistakes. So that's been kind of their response. They are essentially saying, like, it's bad, it's not good, but we're past it. Right. Of course, that's not a choice that they get to make, particularly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so what are your thoughts on this? We kind of went back and forth a little bit about um, about this on the bonus episode when we were talking about David Cho. Uh, this this is a hard one because it's it's weird, basically. Like, I think you pointed out Cho's been around for a long time and he's been in things, including stuff like The Mandalorian. Mm-hmm. since 2014 since this kind of statement story uh, whatever the hell it is um uh, in which he apparently brags about raping a woman it's it's still such a complicated thing but i and i, I do think that the statement is obviously very well crafted from a pr perspective it, and what i don't know is like does this really reflect what Ali Wong thinks, what, you know, Stephen Yun thinks? It doesn't really matter because they put their names on it and put it out there. Um, I, I think it's still really complicated. I do, I do think that at, at a certain point, um, people do need to be able, when, huh, I don't know how to say this without coming off wrong because i am not excusing this behavior at all what what he did that's the thing this is hard to talk Mm -hmm. about because it's such it's it isn't this it isn't the same thing as like the jonathan major stuff where there are very clear legal allegations there are very clear allegations from people right this is like a story that was repeated that then he is saying isn't true but it might be true and there's no evidence so far yeah. Yeah. There seems to be no nothing proving that it is true. It seems to really just be a story. And I don't it's not excusable, but I do think that at a certain point when people have not acted on some of these things, they do need to be given the opportunity to kind of make up for it and be held accountable, but I don't think that it means this is this is where cancel culture um gets kind of fuzzy because i think that is this something that someone should be quote unquote canceled for you know at what point does the um consequence like have you have you fulfilled the consequences of your actions i don't know if he ever had any consequences other than he had to go to uh to therapy checked himself in to a center at one point and so it's like 
people in general didn't know about this. So it's like, did he face the consequences already or not? I don't really know. Uh, it also was nine years ago. It, it's, it is, it's, it's complicated. I, I, someone did point out that like they must, somebody involved must have known about what he had said because some of the things that he mentioned made it into the script of the show and something that Ali Wong actually wow. says. <laughs> and I was like, hmm, that's weird and a little bit disturbing. <laughs> so that does make it a little bit more complicated, but I I don't I, I don't it's <laughs> it's this is a this is a tough one. And I do think that um, you know, we we talked, we've talked about human beings being messy and mm -hmm. figuring out like, I think that there, there are different levels to some of this, that it's about, there's the personal reaction, the individual reaction of a, a single person. There's, yeah. you know, the PR reaction that Netflix is having that Stephen Yun and um, Ali Wong are having and the choices that they're making about how they're going to basically deal with this. It is very odd. Like I, the, the thing is, I didn't, it, one of the the bizarre things for me is like coming from a person who's completely outside this. I had no idea who David Cho was until like two weeks ago. Yeah. Um, and then I was just like, oh, he's the guy who's he's on beef. Like I he he's good. And then suddenly there were all of these things that were buzzing around. And then it's like this is something that happened in 2014. Is this true? Is this not true? How are people going to respond to it? I do think in, in a lot of ways that actually some of the Netflix and the, the beef team's reaction to it has made things worse than it should be. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, this is the kind of thing that probably if like Ali Wong uh, um, locked her, her Twitter account, there are a whole bunch of things that have happened. And like I say, they have kind of lined up behind him and said like, this is a non-problem basically. And I do wish that maybe they had addressed it in a clearer way from the outset or something. If it feels like that this has become a bigger problem than it might have been if they had addressed it in a different way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's the reactions are are interesting and kind of all over the place too. Like there's a writer, Win Lee, who is in this article from Elias, who said. Um, this was a moment to be different and no one took it. Certain things the show preached and practiced, especially on the don't let your bad impulses consume you front, the people involved did not apply. And I I thought that was an interesting take. I It's not that I'm going to necessarily disagree. I think everybody looks at this very differently, but I, I don't know that the bad impulses actually did consume anybody here. Like he he moved on. He's acknowledging it. He's apologized. He's, you mm -hmm. know, and, and Stephen Young and Ali Wong, like they're in the statement, like one of their things was he's done the work, which I don't know. I haven't seen it. He went to counseling. Did he do all the work? I don't know, but that's also not for me to say. So it, it's just kind of one of those things where it's like, I don't, I think that we have to be very careful um, not to just jump to anybody who's done anything bad in the past um needs to go away forever because that's not it mm -hmm. either people need the opportunity to um correct their their wrongs um whether those were mistakes or intentionally doing things they, there's there's a lot of things that we need the opportunity to come back from um there are some that we don't 
but and and that's 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 part of why this is so complicated because i think everyone disagrees on where that line is yeah yeah no exactly when we've talked about things like this before so that's 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 the david cho thing it's very hard to I, i think it's very hard to unpack at the end of the day um and and there are definitely a lot of different opinions that are are floating around all most of them justified as far as i can tell some of them go further than i necessarily feel but i also understand the response Mm -hmm. um and i do think that that there's a certain point at which it becomes an individual i do we also do have to acknowledge that we are two white women we are talking about um an, an asian american man and the woman that he describes supposedly describes assaulting is a black woman right so there are other levels that we are also not being able to process because of our our particular privilege and and the world the way that we look at the world etc. So I think that that's something to acknowledge as well. There's a lot of different responses that are happening. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I and I that- don't fault anybody for their responses. I you know it's it's just it's so messy and tricky. It's messy. Yeah. So let's move on from that and and talk about something that's totally not messy and definitely not complicated and does not evoke complicated feelings in me as a female viewer. The erotic thriller. Mm -hmm. Um, So the erotic thriller, what is an erotic thriller? This is a question that I have been asking ever since people began talking about the erotic thriller again. Um, like about a year or so ago and everyone was complaining about there's not enough sex in movies or there's too much sex in movies. We should definitely bring back the erotic thriller. And I was like, should we though? Um, so the erotic <laughs> thriller is is usually kind of identified as a, as a subgenre that is an offshoot primarily of film noir and crime movies. Um, but that was particularly popular in the the 80s and 90s, where you had this kind of series of films that usually basically took noir plots. And in fact, one of the films we're going to talk about is, is essentially a remake of Double Indemnity um, and and added a lot of sex. basically. Mm-hmm. All the things they couldn't do during the noir Hayes code era (laughs) yeah exactly so so a lot of it involves very complicated morality and you get villain quote villains who win at the end um and and definitely representations of sex a lot of them and and you know I think a a little while ago we talked about I think last at some point last year we talked about representations of sex in film and particularly the porn aesthetic which became um, more prevalent in the 1970s. So it's post Hayes code, post production code, much more American independent. And um, and when you were allowed really to represent actual, you know, sex on screen, there was a in in mainstream films there was a sort of emphasis on what is usually referred to as the porn aesthetic, <laughs> and the erotic thrillers go hard on that. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, what there. <laughs> so usually uh, this this kind of gets identified with films like Fatal Attraction um, from 1987, Basic Instinct, um, Dress to Kill, Body Heat, which is one of the films we're going to talk about. Um, and you sh- and you know I'm not going to go through all of the the various elements of the of the subgenre, but it's essentially like you said, it's film noir but without the Hayes Code. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's the best way of describing it. Um, so I think th- 
this is such a complicated issue um, because people have talked about the the also the settings of these films that very often it's not pleasant sex a lot of the time. Like right. it's not representation, it's not positive representations of sex. It's kind of this desperate, often angry um sexuality that is represented on screen. And usually it leads to someone getting murdered. Um or someone being like so consumed, usually a man being so consumed by a woman's sexuality that he agrees to commit murder. So again, very much the shades of film noir, not, not, nothing particularly unusual about it. Um, but this is also happening within the context of the backlash against uh, feminism that was happening in the 1980s, the AIDS crisis, which, which begins in the 1980s, in which sex you know, can literally lead to death. Um, it can it's in, in a way that it didn't in the, in the 1960s and the 1970s. So you have all of these these weird things kind of coalescing into this genre that is a mainstream genre. Um, but at the same time, feels in places very pornographic, very disturbing, very often represents some kind of sexual violence, not necessarily against the, the main the main character, but um but does sort of have this undertone of meanness and sleaziness and nastiness. So unpacking exactly what these films do and whether, whether or not they're feminist, can they be feminist? Are they anti-feminist? Is that true for one of these films and not for another one? Um, it's, it's a very complicated issue. So before we get into like talking about the, the films, what are your feelings generally, Karen, on the erotic thriller? <laughs> <laughs> um okay so i think this is going to reveal a little bit about me psychologically but i think that because i mean i i graduated from high school in 1994 so kind of the the end of this sort of classic period was when i was going into college um so i watched a lot of these movies when i was like in high school and, and young adulthood and i think that this is part of why i hate sex in movies now because it's so fucking boring <laughs> <laughs> It's like not that not that this is the kind of aspirational sex or whatever, but sometimes it's like, yeah, like she's hanging from a fence and they're just going out. <laughs> you know, it's like it, it's so much more interesting to watch than, than what we get now. So, um, but I just I think that the genre itself. There's a lot of really bad movies here, but there's also just some that are just just fun and really entertaining mm -hmm. and there's also some like like you mentioned fatal attraction that have just kind of had this like enduring life because they actually are pretty good movies too as yeah. far as whether they're feminist or not i i think it depends on the movie and i think there's a an individual case to be made for each you know for each one yeah i think that i think that at least some of these films uh certainly some of the films we're going to talk about it can be read from a, through a feminist lens in a positive way. So that this is actually kind of a positive representation in, in a certain sense, um, particularly when you're talking about a lot of the women in these films come from, they, they're based in the femme fatale, right? Mm -hmm. So they're coming out of a, a genre or you know, a mode of filmmaking that is, that is also very complicated because you can they can be read of one or two ways. One of the things that many erotic thrillers allow for because of the time period is for the bad guy, the femme fatale, to win, mm -hmm. to actually succeed, to um, 
commit murder, multiple murders sometimes <laughs> to completely indulge in kind of like sadism and violence and be the one who survives to the end of the film. Mm-hmm. Be the it's one true. who is successful at the end of the film. It's true. But there's also this element too where it's not just like they're bad because they're bad. You also, in a lot of these, start to see a little bit of like, oh, she's a sociopath. Oh, there's, you yeah. know, she was she was abused. And so there's lingering, you know, trauma and things like that to kind of explain why she is the way that she is in in most, in many cases. At least. In some of them. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first film, and, and I will say right now, I think that we're going to spoil these films. If you have not seen the three films that we're talking about, which are Body Heat, The Last Seduction and Jade. And we're also going to talk about a, f- a few others um but these in particular i'm gonna say right now i'm gonna spoil them so. yeah we're gonna talk spoilers about these we'll mention a few other movies probably without a lot of spoilers but these we're gonna talk about in depth yeah so so all of these uh, i think all of the films that we're talking about are actually available right now on the criterion channel and they also are available in other places so they're all worth seeing i think the two of these films are very worth seeing one of them is <laughs> not which we will talk about in a minute um, I chose the- it for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm going to make you justify it multiple I, times. I will. <laughs> <laughs> so the the first one we want to talk about is actually earlier than Fatal Attraction. It's interesting. Fatal Attraction is like, oh, this was the first one. It's like, no, it wasn't. Um, Body Heat, which mm-hmm. is a, a 1981 American quote neo noir, and it's 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 an erotic thriller starring um william hurt and kathleen turner and i gotta say kathleen turner is just life goals for me uh in this film just like this is exactly i love kathleen turner in this movie (laughs) i don't know how anybody couldn't honestly she she's wonderful and you totally understand why this incredibly stupid man (laughs) would go to such lengths and be so fucking dumb Mm-hmm. around this woman you're just like yep i probably would murder people from kathleen turner like i will admit that it's so um, true but okay before we before we dive into talking specifically about this movie let's talk a little bit about something else that is kind of a, a hallmark of the genre which is that you a lot of times get big stars and big directors yeah and in this case this was his first uh directing achievement but this is Lawrence kasdan who wrote The Empire Strikes Back and Raiders of the Lost Ark. So Mm -hmm. he's got like, you know, he's already got the chops. And so now he comes out and he's doing this, like he wrote it and directed it, but it's like his first big movie. And, you know, of course, stars are going to want to jump on on board for that. And of course, it's going to be really interesting to people um, wanting to go out and see it. So I just, I I wanted to to mention that. And um, yeah, yeah it also it, it was a pretty it was a pretty successful it, it's definitely one that um it was it did okay when it first came out but it had a really long life after because of the fact that the 80s kathleen turner and william hurt became such huge stars so it just yeah kind of yeah exactly going. and and also um ted danson and mickey work both have mm-hmm. smaller both have like secondary roles mickey work is like in two scenes i think yeah. in, the, in the film but he's great like so yeah the, this is it's a very quintessentially kind of early 80s movie too it yeah. has that kind he's getting still kind of the leave over from the 1970s but it's very much moving into the 80s 
And um, and then it also has all of these elements that are very much based in uh, in Double Indemnity, the nineteen the nineteen forty four film um, with Barbara Stanwyck and uh, Fred McMurray, and then also it was a it was a novel before that. But so essentially, William Hurt plays a very dumb lawyer um, in South Florida who begins an affair with a married woman, Maddie, played by Kathleen Turner, and. Over the course of this affair, Maddie more or less convinces um, or kind of gets him to propose basically murdering her husband, who also appears to be involved in um, organized crime. That is where she is so smart because she doesn't ever suggest it. She leads him there and he thinks that it's his idea. Yeah. and, And that's one of the things that I think was really fascinating about this film. So at the beginning of the film and and throughout it is emphasized how stupid the william hurt character is <laughs> and and numerous and i and i'm saying that not just in the way that he behaves but numerous characters tell him that he's dumb mm-hmm. they say to him you're not smart enough for this you're not smart enough to pull this off stop trying to be smarter than you are all of these things you think with your dick basically um and and your dick isn't terribly smart either <laughs> And and he kind of believes him, but he kind of doesn't. He keeps on sort of moving forward as though, oh, yeah, I'm actually I'm actually a really intelligent, capable person. And then we find out essentially that, yeah, the Maddie, the Kathleen Turner character has been leading him on the entire time, has essentially created a scenario in which he murders her husband and she walks away with all of the money and either kills him or leaves him holding the bag. And And she has planned this long before they ever met. Yeah, and that's what's one of the the great things I think about this film is that there's not a moment, like there is no moment where she is actually, you know, invested in this relationship. This isn't happenstance. She has she has like singled him out basically mm-hmm. and been like, this is the guy, this is the guy that is so dumb and is so led by his own libido that I will be able to get him to do this. And so she has like constructed this entire scenario. I I really do enjoy this film because it shows that right from the beginning. It shows how smart she is right mm-hmm. from the beginning. And you kind of sit there going like, and it's one of the things that um, always drives me a little bit crazy about some film noir and particularly in films like Double Indemnity. This is partially my reaction against Frederick Murray as well. But you look at some of these women, just like, why would that woman be after that man? Like, why would she want this boring dude? And in the case of uh, of Body Heat, just like, because he's boring and because he's stupid. Mm-hmm. and and she's not and she's smart and so there is this maddie gets away with it in the end there is this triumph to it where essentially like at, at the end of the day he finally figures out what has happened and how he has been entrapped and she walks off with everything she goes to a beautiful island <laughs> and and he's stuck in prison and it's actually yeah, exactly. It's actually as as a as a female viewer, I guess it's a very sad. It's actually a very satisfying ending. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't have a problem with it. I was like, yeah, he's an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he did kill the guy, so yeah, uh, absolutely. But he's it guilty. is it's one of those instances where you're almost conditioned to believe that she is going to get caught and she's going to be punished. 
Mm -hmm. right in some way and she isn't like the film the film ends with her on a desert island on this like beautiful tropical paradise island yeah um and and that's where it leaves us so there is no indication at the end of the film that she's going to be punished in any way for what she's done and she's committed multiple murders she has broken all kinds of laws she's stolen a whole bunch of money and she gets away with it Mm -hmm. yeah what's the problem Well, I think it's interesting also no. how like it how is the film meant to be read? Because one of one of the issues I think that we come across with a lot of these erotic thrillers is how we're supposed to feel about mm-hmm. the female character in in particular, the female character. Um, and then, you know, and that's when you begin to get into is this the issue of the male gaze? How how is the male gaze? I would argue, actually, that this film can be read from a very powerful feminist perspective in that Maddie kind of takes on all of the attributes of the femme fatale, but she's the femme fatale who wins. She's the femme fatale who actually gets what she wants at the end. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and does it through exploiting male weakness. Right. And well, and that's, that's the thing. And I think where you look at a movie like fatal attraction, which came out just a few years later, um, they they spend a great deal of time showing you that in that case, Glenn Close's character is batshit crazy and she needs to be stopped. But in the case of Maddie here, um, it it's it's like, well, she's her husband was a terrible person. He needed to go anyway. You know, it's it's that kind of thing where and then it's like that is dummy and he's a lawyer and he lets himself get baited by this you know and it's like yeah he kind of had it coming you know not necessarily but you know that's kind of the the gist so it's like so i think that's where in this case yeah it's definitely one where it's like you don't you think that she's gonna get caught in the end but you also are kind of like yes when she doesn't because she's not someone who necessarily needs to be stopped because people that she's targeting aren't necessarily sympathetic except for possibly she does murder her like friend that she's stolen her identity that is true that 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 wasn't very nice (laughs) well it it is this like amoral or immoral Mm -hmm. woman right who at best she's amoral she yeah she's immoral um kind of using and and it's against that's that similarity to the femme fatale using the trappings of what is expected of her she's a beautiful woman she is she's you know she's very attractive she's very sexual um and she uses that in order to entrap and and eventually destroy men um and that in itself is is you know a very misogynist trope on the other hand it is a woman using the kind of strictures of her society and the strictures of, you know, 1970s, 1980s society in this case, um, that, and that allows her to sort of succeed. So she knows how to use it. And it's, it's kind of a back and forth. It's like, is this feminist? Is this not? Well, you can read it both ways, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And, and like you say, in a very different way from something like fatal attraction or, or even basic instinct where, the woman's sexuality is so obviously unhinged and dangerous. Right, right. There's mm-hmm. much more of taking the perspective of the, of the male in the film. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and in the case of base, uh, not basic instinct, uh, fatal attraction, it's like there's also an innocent family in the balance here too. Mm-hmm. And they're also in danger. And 
So that just kind of takes on a life of its own. In this case, you know, the, the person here that's mostly in danger is Ned, who is, he's going to prison for something he did. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's so, the, the thing that I think bring that elevates this film for me is that so many people tell him not to do it. Right. Like he's got multiple friends who tell him, you know, you're getting involved in something that is that you're not going to be able to get out of. Like, this is a bad idea. Don't do it. And he goes ahead and does it. And it's like, oh, look what happens. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that's the thing. And it's like he just keeps getting himself caught up because he just cannot believe that someone like Maddie could be playing him. That he can't he can't imagine mm-hmm. that she wouldn't actually be into him, that she would be smarter than him. All of that, because he just he can't see it. And so he just convinces himself that he knows he knows her better than anybody else mm-hmm. until he is literally behind bars and can't <laughs> like can't and, and go anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And realizes and like sa- and tells what his cop friend like, here's what mm-hmm. happened. It's just like you've got no proof. Like there's nothing we can do. Basically. A, you have no proof. B, you murdered the guy. Yeah, exactly. And you dumped his body. Like you still did it. It doesn't matter <laughs> why you did it. You still did it. She made you do it, but <laughs> did you have to? Like you didn't. Uh, yeah. So I, I do find, I find Body Heat a very satisfying film in a lot of ways because, and I think that, and some of it, you know, you're t- talking about this, this whole idea of the kind of male hubris, right? It's this mm-hmm. idea that there's no way that this beautiful woman, one would be smarter than me mm-hmm. and two would, um, would not want me. And you get those things running throughout erotic thrillers and throughout film noir. And very often it's just like, no, of course she loves you. It's just like, no, she doesn't. She doesn't. You are a useful fall guy. Mm-hmm. And she's uh, been planning this since before you ever laid eyes on her. Yeah, she and she intended for you to lay eyes on her. And she's actually smarter than you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it, there, there is this sort of underhanded celebration of, um, of you know, female intelligence and the the brilliance of this woman, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, with that in mind, let's talk a little bit about the last seduction, which is <laughs> so I, I laugh about this one, but this this film I think is wild. I, I do like one of the one of the features of erotic thrillers does often become like an extremity. So, you know, we talked about porn aesthetic, but there's some some of these plots are just batshit. Mm-hmm. Like they go off the rails at some point. It's like they took a noir plot and were like, but let's make it. 5,000 times crazier. Yeah. Um, And The Last Seduction is one where I think that sort of batshitness actually works in a lot of ways, Um, in in large part because of Linda Fiorentino. But again, this this is one of those films where, much like Body Heat, where throughout the film, and in this case, the woman keeps on saying, I'm horrible. I'm a bitch. Mm -hmm. You don't want to be around me. And again, multiple people warn the very stupid central male character, she's terrible. You're going to get yourself into a lot of trouble doing this. (laughs) Um, And lo and behold, that's exactly what happens. So this is a film that uh, features Linda Fiorentino, who for me in these films, I'm like, I did not know this about Linda Fiorentino because I know her from Men in Black. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And so then I watched this movie just like, my God, Linda Fiorentino, stop it. It's like, (laughs) you're going crazy. You don't talk like that. (laughs) So I love this. The entire film 
begins with her stealing a whole bunch of money from her husband, played by Bill Pullman, who has been <laughs> sort of pushed into uh, dealing cocaine. He's a doctor. And so like he's been pushed into uh, dealing pharmaceutical cocaine, which he then gets a whole bunch of money for and she runs off with. Um, she winds up in a small town in upstate New York, apparently near Buffalo. I love the fact that this is all set in upstate New York. This is where I'm from. <laughs> I fucking love it. All the references to Buffalo. I'm like, yes, that is what Buffalo is like. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, and, and she kind of gets stuck in this small town in Buffalo where she, she runs across Mike, who's played by, uh, Peter, Peter Berg. Berg. <laughs> um, again, she who's the nerdiest men. <laughs> Who, who picks her up at a bar and they kind of begin this, this sexual relationship that he wants in the alley to be... with her hanging from a fence. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, like, he was there to be something more, but she's just like, no, I'm just, I'm really just like, I enjoy sleeping with you. That's about it. Um, and, and eventually through all of these different permutations, she essentially winds up again in trapping him uh, and convincing him to murder her husband who has been pursuing her and at one point actually sends a detective after her um in order to, in order to get the money back because he's in a lot of trouble yeah because uh, he owes money to a loan shark <laughs> <laughs> so again this whole film it gets weirder and weirder as the film goes on and there was there's definitely a point where i was watching this where i was like what the fuck is she up to like what is she doing what is the goal here and some of the goal, honestly, is just like, uh, she wants to survive and she wants to keep the money. Those are the two things that she wants. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it gets weirder and weirder. And there's there's particularly nearing the end of the film, there is a very bizarre kind of left turn that it takes <laughs> um, that, that definitely it highlights, I think, one of the issues that come up in a number of erotic thrillers, um, which is the issue of not just sexuality, but sexual identity. Uh, yes. And and it's something that Brian De Palma uses a great deal of in uh, in Just to Kill, obviously. But this one comes up as well. But I I think what makes this film and what sort of drives it and makes it an, at least somewhat enjoyable for me is Linda Fiorentino and this her total and complete lack of morality mm-hmm. and and desire to basically just do whatever the hell she wants to do and to hurt whoever she wants to hurt yeah. in in <laughs> the in the process of like just keeping the money that she has stolen mm-hmm. right there is no she's a total so- sociopath there is no remorse there is no sense that she feels bad about anything that she does at any point and she just fucks up these people's lives. <laughs> so here's, I have a couple of thoughts about this movie. First, and, and some of them are like not about the actual content of the movie itself. But like, this is how wild the 90s were. I didn't remember this until I was reading up about it. But um, there were people that embraced this one so much they they thought that she like there were there were people pushing for her to get an oscar nomination for this movie and the reason that she well i don't know if that's the reason she didn't but they ended up it played on hbo before it was released in theater so it was ineligible so um but she did get nominated for a bafta award and she won the independent spirit award and i just think that's so wild (laughs) 
Well, it is. I mean, it's a great performance. I, I think there are very few female characters like this who are totally immoral, totally mm-hmm. without remorse. And again, spoiler alert, win in the end are not mm-hmm. punished at all. Yeah, she never faces any consequences. It's actually pretty great. And um yeah, um so I there's something I was gonna say and now I don't remember <laughs> what it was. Um I'm like glancing through the plot summary to see if it can jog my memory. But yeah, I love how there's just all these things about her. Like you've got Peter Berg, um what's his name in it mike mike um and he just he no like much differently from william hurt and body heat like he knows she's bad news like he just he knows there's something off about her but he just is like so drawn to her like he just he keeps ignoring his own instincts um and every time she pays just the slightest bit of attention he's just like okay (laughs) you know even though he knows he should just stay away and the initial scene where they meet, she tells him to go away mm-hmm. like several times. Yeah. She's just yeah. like, fuck off. I, I don't want to talk yeah. to you. Like, like, and, and she does that numerous times throughout mm-hmm. the film where like, he will say things like, you know, Oh, I'm in love with you. It's just, it's just like, I'm just fucking you. Like, <laughs> I'm not in love with you. And the points at which she begins going like, Oh, I'm actually in love with you is when she is in so much trouble that she desperately needs a fall guy. And it is obvious, it would be obvious to anyone except this idiot. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. And he is, he is an idiot. And um, and so it's like he just kind of he wants so badly for to believe. Well, there's even a line, and I should have written it down, but there's a line where she finally tells him um that she that she's into him, and he is just like, of course, because I'm the best thing in this town and you're not from here. And like, if you like me, then that tells me that I'm right. That I am like way too good for this place. <laughs> he says it differently than that, but that's basically what he's yeah. saying. And it's no, it's, like, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, Oh my gosh, this, the ego on this guy who doesn't really seem to have a reason to have an ego like that. Well, and one, one and of it, the things, no, sorry, go on. Oh, I was just gonna say, and that's what ultimately leads to him, his own downfall too. And he ends up getting in trouble for things that he didn't actually do. Yeah, exactly. And one of the things that um, I did find amusing, entertaining about this, so like I say, I'm, I'm from upstate New York. I'm not from that area of New York, but, um, but Buffalo, the place that he went to make it in the big city <laughs> not new york city but buffalo like he goes to buffalo and he can't succeed in buffalo and if buffalo has a lot of good points i will not say that buffalo is a bad place um you know go bills all of that but buffalo is not like the big city where you go to to be a big success or anything like that like it it is funny and i do i think that that's deliberate i imagine that it's deliberate is that this guy is so small time in so many ways that his big excursion is to go to buffalo and he can't even make it in buffalo yeah so it's Again, this is this is one of those films that's really difficult to unpack. So the ending, it 
ends with um like her like the major basically shootout in um in her apart in her husband's apartment where she eventually murders Bill Pullman and she reveals what we had not known which is that one of Mike's great shame or whatever is that he married a a they don't really define it but he married a transgender woman or he married a drag queen mm-hmm. um and it's never completely defined or anything but it's like this it's supposed to be this big shocking moment and it's a very weird turn in this film and like i say it, it has elements definitely that are connected to um films like dress to kill where this the issue of homosexuality especially for the main character um or or the issue even especially of of transgender um people is a big one and this is something that comes up a lot in the 1980s and the 1990s of the the horror of horrors is for a man to marry a woman who is actually a man that's the way that it's it's framed Right. Yeah. Well, and I don't I don't remember if it was before or after this movie. I feel like it was before this one. There was a big case um, that went to court and everything where uh, a couple had been married for like 17 years. And then he found out that she was actually a transgender woman. She was born a man. And um, and it was this huge case. And I don't remember the names of the couples, otherwise I'd look it up. But um, but I remember it being this like, I mean, you couldn't go anywhere without people talking about it. And like, how did they how were they married for 17 years? And he didn't know, you know, that kind of thing. And um, it really did kind of it made its way into pop culture in a lot of different ways. Like mm-hmm. sometimes people, you know, in comedy, people were making fun of it. It also became, you know, subject of dramas and stuff too. And it, it, that case was one that was like kind of the big one that got a lot of people talking, but there were a lot of these cases popping up. So to see it, it showing up also in movies makes perfect sense because it really was reflecting something that was happening at the time because transgender identity was not acceptable. It was yeah. not something that people could openly live and embrace um in in that time period it's now we look back on it and we're like that's ridiculous but we live in a much different world than 30 years ago yeah absolutely and um and i I think that this was also the point at which there was a question about the the whole idea of gay panic being a defense Mm -hmm. yeah um being like a legitimate defense for if for murdering someone and and yeah, and this this comes up also in films like Silence of the Lambs, stories like Silence of the Lambs, um, like I say, Dressed to Kill. Uh, it comes up actually a little bit. It's it's interesting. I think cinematically, one of its progenitors is um, is films like Psycho, mm-hmm. uh, but but also a lot of Italian giallo films have this as a feature where the question of sexuality, especially of especially of male homosexuality, and especially of transgender sexuality is a big one like this whole idea of like i'm dating uh, a woman that is actually a man kind of thing um mm-hmm. comes up in the crying game as well oh That's my gosh yeah that one was huge, huge right yeah mm-hmm. um but it does i think it's it's one of several things that dates a lot of these films yeah and that it, especially in this one is such a weird turn because it doesn't it's barely necessary it's not necessary it's barely important as as like Mm -hmm. part of the plot but it it's there and it's like it just adds that little 
strange twist to a story. I think it's supposed to be kind of a perverse twist at some level um, that just sort of shifts things a little bit more. It's a, it's a very odd addition. Yeah. Um, I was actually trying to find out. Oh, no. Okay. That was the next year. I was looking for when the Jenny Jones murder case thing happened but that was that was the year after but but yeah i think i think it did tap into the as you mentioned the gay panic situation where people were um murder like mike's situation is an interesting one because it's it's not a case where you know like his his wife is gone like they're they're divorced or divorcing and so it's it's kind of a weird situation, but I still, yeah, I think that it was it was kind of one of those things that was tucked in there as a reflection of what was happening in the world. And it was completely unnecessary. It didn't make any difference. But I think in the the mindset of 1994, I think for people watching it, they're like, oh yeah, I could see how I could see how a guy who's been dealing with that would be pushed to murder, you know. <laughs> Well, and push to which push is ridiculous, off. which is ridiculous. But there's there's also an implication push to demonstrate his sexuality, right? right. Yeah, push yeah. push to kind of show that he's straight, mm-hmm. right? Even though no one knows he's about straight, this. he's a man, right? Yeah, yeah, he's straight and he's a man, and it it works horribly against him because the result is that he winds up uh, winds up being caught for something that he did. They say he, he contemplated, but he didn't to do rape and murder, even though he didn't do either <laughs> of those things. <laughs> Um, so again, it, it is an it's an interesting film in terms of the way that the woman uses again male sexuality in particular against the men. Mm-hmm. Um, so it isn't just her employing her own sexuality, but actually using their sexuality against them. Right. Um, which I think there's also the implication that he would have killed for her. Yeah, he just didn't because she did it first. <laughs> She's like, fine, I'll do it. Um, <laughs> but it it also, you know, in, in terms of feminist theory and feminist analysis, it also sets her in in the position of sexual aggressor. And that's true also in, in Body Heat, where it's kind of like the woman who sort of who vamps, right, who pushes the man into a sexual relationship. Um, mm-hmm. And and in, in, in the case of The Last Seduction, there's almost a flip of gender roles because you've got this woman who is who literally multiple times says she is only interested in sex. She yeah. is not interested in love. She is not interested in a relationship. And he's the one who keeps on coming back to her being like, no, but you actually love me. You actually want to be with me. You know, I'm in love with you. All of those things. And that that's a, an interesting kind of reversal that, again, a question about whether or not it's a feminist reversal, but it's definitely a reversal of gender roles. <laughs> yep. So let's move on to the film that it that some claim actually killed the the erotic thriller subgenre um, that comes only a year after the last seduction. So last seduction is nineteen ninety four. This one was nineteen ninety five. Also stars Linda Fiorentino. Is written by Joe uh, Esterhaus, who also wrote Basic Instinct and Showgirls. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> He has had quite a career and, and is directed by William Friedkin. So on paper, it's like, okay, all right, this might be good. Uh, this is the film Jade. Yeah. From and- 1995. I want you to justify this to me now, Karen. Justify okay. this film. But here's the thing. <laughs> I, it's not the film. It's not the movie itself that I'm, that I'm, that was why I wanted to talk about it. It was, 
like not the 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 substance of the movie it's I know. because of yeah it's because i i think in many ways this was kind of the the beginning this was the beginning of the end of mm-hmm. this this genre subgenre whatever and um as you already pointed out like on paper you know you had joe esterhaus who had already had a big hit with basic instinct um you have william friedkin who this is only 20 years removed from the exorcist. And I was thinking about that in like our terms. And it's like, well, what movies came out 20 years ago, Lord of the Rings, um, pirates of the Caribbean. So it's like, you could see where, you know, an actor would be, you know, like, yeah, I'll jump in and do a Gore Verbinski movie. I'll do totally do a Peter Jackson movie, you know? And in this case you had David Caruso, who was the star of one of the biggest shows on television. He was in NYPD blue and he they go into the second season and had a killer first season like just huge huge success they go into the first the second season he wants to renegotiate his contract doesn't get the offer that he wants so he's like forget it i'm gonna go make movies and then he does jade and basically kills his movie career and ends up having to like you know tail between his legs go back to tv he never goes back to nypd blue but he you know kind of bounced around some he did some my other other movies and stuff but it just it, it, this like in many ways this killed the genre and it also killed his career <laughs> there's a joke just... in there's a joke in the very early episode of south park where it, one character says to another do an impression of david caruso's career and the <laughs> the kid just like jumps off of the roof basically <laughs> Pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah. So that's why I wanted to talk about this because like all of that happened because of a movie that is actually pretty bad. It's it's a bad movie. And the movie itself cannot be justified. I don't know how anybody can watch this and seriously like it and think that it's good because it's not. Um <laughs> <laughs> I, I have to admit that after reading some of the like letterbox reviews and it's got like a, a 5% on Rotten Tomatoes <laughs> or something like that, um, which isn't always in it, particularly with older films, you know, pre kind of 2010 films is not right. always an indication of anything. Um, but so I was just like, okay, I'm expecting this to be pretty bad. It was actually a little bit better than I expected it to be. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, and, and I honestly, I think a lot of that is due to the cast, that, that it's yeah. a very strong cast. One of the things that, that surprised me about this film is, Linda that Warren Beatty was originally offered the role that David Caruso <laughs> really I did not know that he turned that it would, down I think that would have been a better film um <laughs> but Linda Fiorentino is not in it for large sections of the film like a good bit of it is David Caruso investigating this like murder right that is going to make his career and mm-hmm. and Linda Fiorentino is just like she's she's gone to LA or something like that yeah. Um, there is an insane car chase in the middle of two, but yeah, (laughs) the the one that I'm thinking of is where like, you know, the, 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 he's like chasing the car through the streets of San Francisco and they run into like a (laughs) Chinatown parade and it just keeps on going. They're trying so hard to recreate the bullet car chase scene and it just, (laughs) It, it doesn't work it just keeps on going i'm just like when is this gonna stop is it gonna end at some point is this this is most of the film right now <laughs> um yeah it's it's so so the, the base the basic plot is uh david is caruso plays david corelli who is an assistant district attorney in san francisco 
Um, and he's called to, to a crime scene of uh, a murdered businessman who was uh, killed by an antique hatchet in his home. So like, okay, good, good opening, good beginning, everything. They I'm not really sure why an assistant district attorney is there investigating the crime, but I will fine. accept it. I will accept <laughs> it. Whatever. You know, like I'm okay with suspending my disbelief. Um, <laughs> but so essentially this leads him down a rabbit hole into discovering that this businessman was into all kinds of weird sex stuff. Um, and because of course he was the, the, this entire film is so deeply sleazy. Um, and it makes sense when you realize it was written by uh, Jeff Esterhaus, but it's just like, I mean, within the first 15 minutes, we've got, you know, David Crusoe uncovering little tins of pubic hair that this guy has kept from his various lovers conquests. I don't know. Um, finding all of these photographs of like the different women with people like the governor and, um, and other prominent businessmen. So it's just, it's, you know, one of the, the features of a lot of these erotic thrillers is this use of sexuality and, and this, this underlying perversity of it, right? So sex and violence are very heavily intertwined. This one, I think, really does emphasize that. Yes. And, and reminds us that, like, this is, it's, it's just gross. It's uncomfortable. It's not, it isn't sexy. Like, there are actually not that many sex scenes in this film. And what there are are just not, attractive like it's just like this is not fun no one's having fun no one's having a good time here one of the things that i find kind of funny is it's like okay so a lot of this hinges on the fact that linda fiorentino basically goes into this this dark world because Chaz palmentary is so bad in bed yes Well, and there, there's a there's a scene where like I think it's very early on where it's like oh David Caruso is the best lover she's ever had or something like that, <laughs> and and they never have sex, right? In the in the film they like they cut they get close but they never actually have sex. I'm like, so you're telling me that this first of all this poor woman I understand why she has made some of the decisions she's made because <laughs> my God like if David Caruso is the best sex you've ever had. I am really sorry. Yeah, like oh honey. <laughs> it's and yeah, that's... it is a it's a batshit film. Like it it is very it's a very bizarre weird, you know, if if some of these films raise the question about whether or not this is feminist or anti-feminist, I would say that this is very anti-feminist. It's very anti-woman. Very. Yes. Yeah, oh yeah. It it hates women. Uh is for sure. Mhm. Um but yeah, I and and that's the thing. I think that's that's a big part of why I thought it was um worth talking about. And um I feel a little bit bad that I didn't warn you, but also I wanted you to just like go into it, just form your opinion. <laughs> so <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think that that what we saw, it, it's almost like in some ways, um because you had movies you know building up to to this point you know we've we've talked about some you also had films like disclosure and mm-hmm. single white female and trying to think of some other ones that fit into the genre where um sometimes the women didn't the these femme fatale women did not win in the end but um but they 
they the movies themselves weren't necessarily like anti-women um but but it's like this kind of feels like like it just kind of they were approaching a cliff and then this just went right over it it's like they just kind of stumbled into like just going a step too far and i think that's ultimately why this ushered in kind of the end of the genre yeah that that makes sense it it pulls back from the from some of the things that have i think pushed that pushed the genre forward which is this female control of sexuality and the way that the the women use their sexuality but also as a, as we said use the men's sexuality against them right mm-hmm. this is one that the woman becomes completely constrained again she is right. the the one in danger she's actually the one in danger it turns mm-hmm. out um And it ends not with any kind of triumph for her, any kind of escape even for her, but actually this whole basically ending where she's, she's going to be enthralled to this man for the rest of her life. Right. Um, This very dangerous, very violent man. And that's, it's, it's distressing because it does all of those elements that we can read into some of those earlier films um, get kind of pulled back. Yeah. And it's just like, we're going to put her back into the box. We're going to put her back under patriarchal control, under misogynist control. Mm-hmm. And make that the ending, make that the way all of this comes out. That's just it. So it's like, just to just to kind of get a little bit more specific. So you have, you know, Linda Fiorentino's character is Anna, um, but she takes on this persona of Jade when she's uh, going to these parties or whatever at, at the governor's secret house and so it's like you get a sense that for her jade is is this persona that she gets to take on that she kind of um adopts and gets to be a little bit more free for a time that's how it started for her but then it quickly became something that was very dangerous and not something that she enjoyed doing and so in the end when you find out that her husband is actually the murderer um and he's getting away with it and then he is just like, introduce me to Jade. And it's just that, just to your point about like how it's just so sleazy. It's like now she is stuck with this person who has murdered and clearly will murder her if he feels like he needs to. And he will probably get away with it. And now he's using that persona mm-hmm. to further entrap her. Yeah, she she's being punished for mm-hmm. for her sexuality outside of her marriage. That's essentially right. what's happening. Mm-hmm. And and I think that the film treats that as, as horrific in a certain sense, but it's still it goes back to some of that film noir morality that yeah. the bad woman, right? The femme fatale, the woman who uses her sexuality, who has sexuality, who, you know, wants to experience something, who even is, you know, attracted to this darkness, right? Mm-hmm. has to be punished for it yeah um and and ultimately brought to heal again and and that's essentially what the film kind of does so it's hardly surprising for all that this is a bad film generally but it's hardly surprising then that some of the kind of movement forward that we saw within this genre is sort of stymied by this particular film yeah yeah, exactly. Well, and that's the thing. Like, that's how that's how so much of this goes. You know, we have a little move forward and then people snap it back, you know, and then we move forward yeah. again a few years later and go into other things. But but yeah, this was this was kind of where where it died. It wasn't the total end. They still they still kept making more of these, but yeah, it, it was like it just never 
I think that that the the heyday of the 80s and 90s erotic thriller never never came back from Jade. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I do want to mention one more thing though. Mm-hmm. And as, as a sort of little hopeful element, Bound comes out in nineteen ninety. That's, that's true. And Bound kind of in in a certain sense, it takes the reins back a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because Bound is one where the bad girls win. They get, they both get the girl, uh, and the bad men are punished. And I, I do have to say that Bound is, there is, you know, if, if, if Jade, if Jade and, and films like it kind of begin to kill the erotic thriller, Bound sort of says like, oh, maybe there's a little bit of hope beyond this. It's also one of the few films in which it seems like they're actually enjoying having sex. So there's true. that. <laughs> that is also true. Yep. I, I do think generally you have to mention that um, many erotic thrillers do treat sex as as da- as at best dangerous, perverted, um, damaging, you know, leading to death, things like that. And a lot of these sex scenes themselves, when they have sex scenes, are definitely viewed via this this pornographic element. Mm-hmm. Um and very much through the attitude of a male camera, male gaze, men consuming the female body. We don't get to see a lot of naked men in this. And, even when, and even when we do, it's not particularly sexualized. It's just like, oh, he's naked. Yeah. Um, whereas when you have with, you know, even with Kathleen Turner in Body Heat or any of these women, usually uh when we see naked women we see women in these positions it's it's very much focused on her but not focalized through her if that makes sense yeah it does well and there's a reason that uh this genre was lovingly referred to as skinamax and (laughs) (laughs) like the cable channel cinemax Mm -hmm. used to have these every night after dark you know it's like 10 o'clock oh what's on you know and and it just kind of added to that, like that naughtiness of of um, these films, too. Yeah. So to close this out, let's propose a question that has been asked a couple of times. Should the erotic thriller come back? I Karen, what are your thoughts? <laughs> I am all for making good movies. And if if people are going to make erotic thrillers that are good, then I say yes. But if they're just going to bring it back just because, you know, like, oh, let's let's just make some dirty movies, then no. I, I'd i agree with that. I think that the thing that drives me crazy about a lot of the conversation around sex scenes right now, um, and especially around erotic thrillers, is that there's an, a lack of willingness to acknowledge the misogynist elements. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's this attitude just like, oh, we should have sex in movies again. It's just like, OK, but these films represent often represent violent sex. They represent sex attached to violence and death. Right. Um, they represent, you know, in films like Jade, they represent women being brought to heal at some level. So women not being able to express themselves in terms of their sexuality. And so often those discussions kind of don't come up. It's just like, oh, we need movies like Brian De Palma's Body Double. And it's like, I don't think that we do. Well, I don't no, think we, we definitely don't. Now, more <laughs> movies like Body Heat. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, yeah, I think there are, there has to be, there has to be a balance. Yeah. So yeah. any, any final thoughts? 
um just watch more movies there's some some like these are on the criterion channel like you mentioned there are also some other ones that are pretty good on there too there are some that are terrible (laughs) i would like to give a warning slash endorsement of the film color of the night um (laughs) which if you have not seen has a fantastic cast uh headed by bruce willis at like the top of his career Mm -hmm. and is one of the most batshit movies I have seen in a very long time. And I do not say that lightly. It is, <laughs> it's like it, it starts weird and off kilter and it gets weirder and more off kilter as it goes along. It makes no sense by the end of the film. Some of it has nothing to do with what the supposed plot of the movie is. It goes off on weird tangents and I am fascinated by it. Like I sat there going like, how did this cast get involved in this movie? Because <laughs> it's great. It's got like Leslie Ann Warren. Um, it, uh, uh, what's his name? Scott Bakula's. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, Bruce Willis, uh, like actually really good cast. Brad Dorf. Um, actually a, a really good cast that is just totally off the wall. um and so yeah like check it out don't check it out don't say i didn't warn you but it is it is an experience it is a cinematic experience i must say nice i am pretty excited i got the email this week about what's coming in may and i was pretty excited that single white female is going to be on criterion in may yes i would be interested to see i've never seen that one you haven't i haven't no oh my gosh it's so good i haven't seen it in years so i can't wait well, check. maybe we'll talk about that at some point. Totally. So I think that that is going to close us out for this week. Um, we have talked about a lot of interesting things, actually. And of course, we, as always, want to thank our lovely patrons who continue to support us. Um, and they include Ali, Brian, Connor, Estefania, Heather, James, Judy, Karen, Cariata, Matt, Michelle, Monty, Nanina, Robert, Robert, Steve, Sharon, and Tao. Thank you so much for continuing to support us. If you want to join their number, um, our Patreon is patreon.com slash citizen dame. You do get bonus episodes. You also get some fun little things. Again, I've mentioned this a couple of times. If you ha- if you are a patron and you have not received buttons, stickers, etc., please shoot me an email. I'll also send out another email blast just to check with everybody. I think that I've got everyone, but I'm I may still be missing someone. So just just let me know. I will get that out to you immediately. Um, we also do still have a Zazzle store, zazzle.com slash citizen dame pod and a Ko-Fi account, uh, ko-fi.com slash citizen dame. By the way, if you want to buy buttons, stickers, things like that, we should have things like uh, uh, our PayPal up and uh, a little store open on our website. Eventually, we're still trying to figure that out. Um, that's citizendamepod.com where we also have reviews and I think Karen has some reviews that are either up or going up really shortly. I'm going to have a hmm? (laughs) coming, coming. And I'm going to have a review of pretty baby, the Brooke Shields documentary up uh, hopefully by the end of the weekend. So by the time you're listening to this, Um, you can also get in touch with us a multitude of ways. Our email is citizendamepod at gmail.com. We are also on the various social medias for now. Um, we are on Twitter and Instagram at Citizen Dame Pod. We have a Mastodon, Citizen Dame Pod at mastodon.social, though we're not using it at the moment. And you can also go to our letterbox uh, at Citizen Dame, and there you can find lists, 
and running uh, running lists about the films that we have been talking about and um, all sorts of fun stuff there as well. Of course, you can get in touch with us individually. Karen, where are you? I am on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Karen M. Peterson. And I got to say, Letterboxd is currently my favorite. So that's the best way to, to find me. Definitely. Yeah. I am also on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at LH Business. And I think that will close us out for this week. We will talk to you guys later. Bye. I'm a married woman. Meaning what? Meaning I'm not looking for company. And you should have said I'm a happily married woman. That's my business. What? How happy I am. And how happy is that? You're not too smart, are you? <laughs> I like that in a man. What else do you like? Lazy? Ugly? Horny? I got them all. You don't look lazy. <laughs> Tell me, does chat like this work with most women? Some, if they haven't been around much. I wondered. Thought maybe I was out of touch.